Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Father, I just thank you right now, Lord. I thank you for every person in this place, God. I thank you that you lead us, you guide us, you instruct us, God. I thank you that your word has been given to us for reproof, correction, and for instruction, God, so that we don't have to make mistakes that other people make, God. We can do it right the first time. So, God, I thank you for every person in this room, God. I thank you that you'll give us nuggets that will help us in our life. It will, it will serve us well, God. It will last us a long time because you want us to last a long time in your service and for your kingdom. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. We're doing the third part of Joshua. And by the time we're through, I hope you will have learned three things from the life of Joshua, three lessons. I asked Alan what he learned from the life of Joshua, and he gave me some good answers. But by the time you end here, I want you to know three things. Number one, you can watch his life and be assured of this, that you need to always be ready to accept any new challenge given to you by the Lord. You need to stay on the move. You can't get stagnant in your walk with God. He might require different things of you at different times. But you need to be bold enough to always take new territory. See, we've got a whole group of people that say, I'm a Christian, but their whole life is spent on maintaining and just sort of keeping the status quo. And God wants us to gain new ground. So we need to always be ready to accept any new challenge. Number two. We want to leave nothing undone. We did a whole lesson on that months ago, but leave nothing undone that Jesus commands us to do. Now, when I say this, I know that some of our minds go to the great spectacular things, my destiny. You know, that wonderful purpose he has for me. I don't want to leave it undone. But you know what? The things that we tend to leave undone are sometimes the daily little nitty-gritty things, getting rid of the bad attitude tithing, being faithful, being on time, keeping our word, keeping our commitments. And so when I say leave nothing undone, I don't mean some spectacular, grandiose thing that God has for your purpose in life. I mean every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So we need to leave nothing undone and be diligent, be earnest, and be thorough in every assignment he gives us. You know, people sometimes say, well, you know, when I get that really great job, I'm going to do it great. And I go, I don't think so. You're not doing this little job very well. And so sometimes the way you do whatever you do is an indicator to how you're going to do the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And don't think that they're not watching in the secular world and in the church. Why should we be any more slothful? And so if you can't tend to this little thing you're given well, you're not going to tend to some big thing a whole lot better. And so you need to be putting into practice the right attitude no matter where you are in the process. We shouldn't be shirking our responsibilities to God or to anybody else. Because you know what? When I say I'm going to do something, it's not just my word to God. There's other people I let down when I don't do that thing, when I let go of it, when I'm slothful, when I slack. Number three, no matter how formidable, no matter how big, no matter how awesomely scary the giants might seem to be in my life or in the assignment God gives me, God will enable me to conquer them. God will enable me to conquer them. And in his time, in his way, he will always grant me the greatest thing of all, the greatest inheritance of all, and that's his rest and his peace on the inside because that is the most precious possession I can have. You can have riches and fame, but if you're in turmoil on the inside, it really doesn't amount to much. You can have all kinds of things, but if there's no rest in your life, you will burn out, wear out, die fast, die young, whatever. So the rest and peace of God are very, very precious. And you will see tonight how God gave that to Joshua in an awesome way. Turn to chapter 6 in the book of Joshua, chapter 6. 
I want to go to verse 18 and 19. I'm going to read a couple of scriptures. I'm going to go through and hit some highlights in the book. I don't want you to just read the book of Joshua or any other book, especially in the Old Testament, like some fable or some story or just a history lesson. I want you to, to understand that these characters were put there, these examples were put there so that you could have something to pattern after, so that you could learn from their mistakes, so that you could watch what they did well and know that maybe God used that principle in their life and he doesn't change and so he'll use it in yours. And so when you read these books, I want you to begin gleaning things from them. Even as you read, without somebody giving you the teaching behind it. Chapter 6, verse 18 and 19. The Lord was giving instruction concerning the battle of Jericho. They had an awesome victory at the battle of Jericho. And God gave them instruction to the people about what they were to do with the spoils. In other words, all the loot that they had in that city once they defeated the people of Jericho. And so God said this concerning those instructions, verse 18. And you, by all means... Keep yourself from the accursed things, lest you become accursed when you take of the accursed things and make the camp of Israel a curse and trouble it. But all the gold, all the silver, all the vessels of bronze and iron are consecrated, they're to be consecrated, God said, to the Lord. They shall come into the treasury of the Lord. So what he's saying, when you go in, there's going to be loot, there's going to be silver, gold, bronze, and iron, but you're not to take it. You might think, hey, we defeated them, hey, this is ours, but God says, no, it's mine. This is your first battle, and I want the loot, the treasure, the spoils, so to speak, the first fruits to come to me. That was the instruction of the Lord. They had this wonderful, amazing victory. The walls of Jericho come tumbling down. It seemed overwhelming in their sight, but it was a done deal because they did everything that God told them to do. The next little go-round, they have this little small, insignificant battle at the place called Ai, and for some weird reason, they lose. And it doesn't make sense to Joshua. It doesn't make sense to the leaders. What is going on? You know, they can defeat this huge, insurmountable city, and yet they can't win this tiny little place. And so Joshua gets dismayed and upset, and he goes, God, what, is go what have we done wrong? See, sometimes we think, God, why didn't you? But sometimes we need to, to seek him for the answer. And sometimes there's something, some little knot we need to pull out of the tangle to understand what all went down. Joshua starts inquiring of the Lord. And asking, what went on, God? Why have we lost? Turn to chapter 7, verse 11. God answers him. Joshua's on his face, lying down. He's upset. And go back to verse 10. The Lord says, get up, Joshua. Why do you lie on your face? Here's the answer. Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my commandment, which I commanded them. For they have taken some of the accursed things. They have not only taken, they've stolen from me, and they've deceived. And they have put it with their stuff. Joshua is mad, <laughs> and he's like, what is this? I told them exactly what to do. I told them exactly what the Lord commanded. This is something that's going to affect all of us, and now somebody's messed it up for all of us. So they go through this whole procedure, this whole process to narrow down who did what, and they go lot by lot, and it comes out in verse 20 that a man named Achan gets discovered, and he finally says, all right, all right, <laughs> I've sinned. I saw this beautiful garment, and I took it. I saw 200 shekels of silver, and I couldn't resist. I saw a wedge of gold, and I wanted it. I coveted this stuff, so I decided, hey, I'm going to take it. And you're like, wow, <laughs> man, I can't believe the guy did it. But you know what? Sometimes we know that the word of the Lord says, hey, tithe. 
the first fruits of your spoils, of your income, of your loot belongs to me. And we see a video camera and we go, I can't tithe right now because I really have to have this. Or we see a beautiful dress, a garment. And we say, I really need a new outfit. I haven't had one in ages. And so if I just half tithe, which is not a tithe, because tithe means tenth. And so, you know, you either do it or you don't do it. If I just give half what I was going to give to the Lord, you know what? I can have that outfit and I'll really feel good about myself. But you know what? God gives instructions to us. We look at these people and we think, I can't believe they're doing it. Yet we do the same things. And so God is saying right now, he's establishing principles of a concept in this little story about the defeat of Ai that the first fruits belong to him. He didn't say this about the other battles, but he said at the first battle, he wanted the spoils to come to him. He's establishing principles. We're to live our life by the principles of God. Number two, another principle is that when we do something, he wants us to be very clear that it's not always just about us. It can affect a lot of other people too. See, am I my brother's keeper? It's easy to say, I don't need to be. But you know what? Sometimes what I'm doing affects a lot of people. And so what we do touches other lives. That can work for good. <laughs> what we do touches other lives, thank God. But sometimes what we do touches other lives. <laughs> and it doesn't work out so well. We have a responsibility to others. Modern philosophy, secular humanism would say, hey, I'm my own person. I'm free to do as I please. Don't take my freedoms from me. You know, don't try to take anything from me. And yet God says, I have commanded you to give. I can't say somebody's taking something from me if I want to live by the principles of God. I, I have to put away that secular humanistic philosophy that's everywhere. That's everywhere. Even good-hearted, good-natured, well-intentioned people will not like it when you start taking a stand on the principles of God. They won't like it because there's this thing, there's this thing in our culture that just pushes the limits against what God wants and says, hey, don't take this away from me. I want to protect this for me. And so we need to be very careful that we are not influenced by it. Third principle, sin has consequences. They're not always immediate. They're not even always apparent. Sometimes we don't even know why we're losing. We don't even know why this is going on and that's going on. And sometimes there's an examination that needs to be made. And if we are sincere, God will point it out, not in condemnation, but so we can fix it, so we can get it right and get victory. Achan, you know, when you read about him, he didn't come clean till it was forced out of him. I don't consider that real repentance. It's like the man didn't seem real grievous over his greed. He was just like, I saw it, I liked it, I took it, hey. <laughs> you know, but he ended up dead because of it. And sometimes we're not physically dead, but there's a spiritual death that takes place when we don't keep in mind the things that God has commanded us to do, when we take them lightly, when we shove them off to the side, when we try to ignore half of what he said. We know that in Malachi it says, will a man rob God? How? They did here the battle of Ai, but after they got it right, after they got it straight, they won every other battle. Turn to chapter 10. That was the hard part first. Now we'll go to the good part. Chapter 10 of the, verse of the book of Joshua. You know, when we think of the word miracle, we think about miracles in the New Testament. Jesus reaching out, healing the blind man. Jesus, the woman with the issue of blood for so many years, and she gets instantly healed. We think of him raising Lazarus from the dead. But there were miracles in the Old Testament. 
There were miracles that God did for his people. The manna coming out of heaven to feed them was a miracle. The fact that the Israelites, the leather on their shoes didn't wear out for 40 years, that was a miracle. So there were many miracles in the Old Testament. In the book of Joshua, chapter 10, we're going to find one. So turn to chapter 10. I'm going to read some selective passages. I'm going to skip around. There was a battle in chapter 10. And verse 10, the Lord routed them before Israel and killed them with a great slaughter at Gibeon and chased them along the road that goes to Beth Horon and struck them down as far as Ezekah and Makeda. And it happened as they fled before Israel and were on the descent of Beth Horon that the Lord cast down large hailstones from heaven as far as Ezekah and they died. And there were more who died from the hailstones than those whom the children of Israel killed with the sword. So God is fighting the battles for them even as they go. But there's more victory to be won. And Joshua knows they're running out of time. And he's grateful that God has killed people with hailstones. But he goes on to say, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel. And he said in the sight of all the people, Sun, stand still over Gibeon. Moon, in the valley of Ajalon. So the sun stood still and the moon stopped till the people had revenge upon all their enemies. Go down to 14. And there has been no day like that, before it or after it, that the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. Go back one verse. So the sun stood still in the midst of heaven and did not hasten to go down for about a whole day. That sounds like a wild claim. That, that's the thing that, that the people who are against the Bible would like to take and make fodder of everything you believe. And so the record of this miracle, some people say, has been the most striking example of a conflict between Scripture and science. But the truth is, when there's a conflict, the Bible's not wrong. And so we've got some scientific people in the room. But the truth is, we all know the sun doesn't move around the earth, causing day and night. And so Joshua was saying, Lord, let the sun stand still. Let it quit rotating. We know it doesn't rotate. What's, what's wrong? Why did he address the sun rather than the earth? Speaking from the perspective and the appearance of things on the earth is called the language of observation, how you see it. When you talk to people, you might not even be scientifically correct, but you're going to talk the way you see it. In Joshua 10, we don't know what happened. We don't know if there was an eclipse or clouds over the sun or, uh, or the reflection of some rays. We don't know. But the best explanation seems to be that in answer to Joshua's prayer, God caused the rotation of the earth to slow down so that it made one full rotation in 48 hours instead of in 24. If we go to verse, verse 12, 13, and the, the end of 13, sun stands still over Gibeon. Joshua was saying it the way he sees it. See, he's saying what he knows. He doesn't know how it really works. He hasn't been trained in the scientific philosophies. So he's going to say it from his point of view. But it says it did not hasten to go down for a whole day. And you're thinking, oh, hey, that's not right either. But you know what? Every almanac we have has sunrise and sunset. The weatherman talks about what time the sunrise, even in our enlightened day, scientifically, the weatherman will say sunrise. 5 a.m. this morning, sunset, you know, 5.36 p.m. We still talk that way. So when people try to use things like that to act like the Bible's not true, we need to discover how are we talking even now. So Joshua wasn't doing so bad even in his unenlightened time. The sun, I believe, God stopped the cataclysmic effect 
that would normally have occurred with this pattern. Normally, if you do that, you're going to have tidal waves. You're going to have objects flying. But you know what? God can do all things. And the Bible says there's never been a day like that before or since. To satisfy his man, Joshua, who was his great military leader, who was bold enough to say, God, you said we were going to have victory, but to have it, we need more time. And to get more time, God, you're going to have to do your part. God actually did it. And so there's evidence that the earth's rotation simply slowed down, and it's found in Joshua 10, 13. The sun delayed going down about a full day. How'd that happen? Had to be that the earth's rotation took longer from the scientific perspective that we have. So Joshua and his soldiers had time to complete the battle. It just so happens also that the sun and moon were entities that the pagan people worshipped. And so God is showing here, hey, I have control over the sun that those people worship. I have control over the moon. Even those people worship, it's sort of like the showdown of the gods. God has control over things that other people would even worship and consider as gods. We were told by some friends of ours that had something to do with several of the space shuttles and that put up satellites around the world. So it's true. Okay. These guys, Jerry and um, George and other men we know, were, were doing the NASA tracking stations and satellite stations I don't even know all the right words and they were running their computers trying to figure out timing on things because you've got to get everything very precise and these guys are running computers and running computers but as they go back so many years in time they start finding a glitch and they can't figure out what it is I don't have it down I don't have the story right but I can assure you that if they told you you would be amazed that they found one glitch that seemed to equal a day and another glitch that seemed to equal a certain part of minutes of time like 10 or 15 minutes when you go into the bible we have it recorded in here that god did something with one day of time in the book of joshua and that god did something um, in isaiah 38 8 with 10 degrees on the sundial and so when you add it up it was the amount of glitches that they were finding on the nasa computers and the man that easy knows was amazed he was not a christian and he thought hey there's got to be something right about this bible because even our computers are picking up and it bears out what it says there's not going to ever be a real conflict between science and the bible god's going to be right every time when we go on to chapter 13 in the book of joshua 13 through 20 or about seven chapters that you'd probably want to skip It just goes on and on with names of tribes and cities that you can't pronounce, but it reads really like a real estate deed. And so we have Joshua in all these chapters at 100 years old dividing up the land that they conquered. We have Reuben, Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh who had wanted their portion early because they saw something that looked good to them, and they talked Moses into letting them have that piece, even though God said, hey, go across. They took land on the other side of the Jordan. They had their portion already, but you've got nine and a half tribes left. And so you have Joshua portioning out the land to all these tribes. And you have Reuben, and you have Gad, and you have all these people getting different pieces. But it's interesting to me that the Levites didn't get a portion because their portion was the Lord. And you know what? You're considered a Levite. You're considered a priest unto God. And so God says, you know what? I'll give you all these things. I'll give you the things you need. I'll provide for you. I'll give you an abundant supply. But really, your portion needs to be me. See, the strength of your heart, the Bible says, and your portion are the Lord's. And so if you don't let him sustain you, you know what? Nothing else will. If he's not satisfying you, you'll always think there's one more thing that will make you feel better, but you'll get it and it won't be that. And so just as the Levites, their portion was the Lord, we want our heart to be like that also. I'm going to skip a few things here. I'm going to go to chapter 20. So if you flip over in your Bible to chapter 20, 
If you have little subtitles in your Bible, you'll see that it talks about cities of refuge. Cities of refuge. And I want you to be familiar with these things in Scripture. I'm doing a lot of teaching. I know it's a little harder to comprehend. But sometimes you just need to be familiar with Bible principles. And so the cities of refuge are mentioned many times in the Bible. There's four books in the Old Testament that refer to them. And all through the Bible, you will find that God emphasizes sanctity of human life. He cares about every person. He cares about you. He cares about that baby before it's ever born. He cares about a baby at conception, and that's why we believe that abortion is wrong. God emphasizes all through the word the sanctity of human life. And so to put an end to a person's life, even if it's unintentional, was a big deal, and it was serious to the Lord. Now, in those days, blood revenge was a normal custom of the time. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a life for a life. And so the moment a person was killed, their nearest relative was responsible to see to it that whoever caused the death got killed. So it wasn't like we turned the other cheek. <laughs> it was a little bit different rule going on. But, you know, God comes in and he says, wait a minute. Maybe that's how you've been operating in this vengeance system. But now I'm going to say vengeance is mine, says God. I will repay. And so we start seeing him putting principles into effect that we don't have to lash out at our enemy. We don't lash out at those who hurt us. There might be another way he wants us to handle it. So they set up a system in the Old Testament where they would have cities of refuge. They had six of them. Some were in the east part of the land, some were in the west. And if it so happened that you accidentally caused the death of another human being, whether it be in work, whether it was by one of your animals, you know, if, if oxen fell on them and maimed them and then they ended up dying, whether it would be if, if your sledgehammer, you know, accidentally hit them and they got knocked in the head and went unconscious and didn't live, no matter what the reason, you could run to a city of refuge for asylum. And there were, uh, the cities of refuge, the roads were, were kept very nice because if you were running for your life so that that relative couldn't kill you, you didn't want many obstacles on the road. The road was clearly posted. It had refuge and arrows so that you'd know which way to go because the people on that road aiming for a city of refuge, it was a big deal to them that they got to their destination. It meant their very life. And they'd get to that place, and they would need to make their case before the elders of the city. And if they made their case before the elders that the death was unintentional and not on purpose, the elders would say, fine, you have refuge in this place. And they could live there until the high priest of that city died, and they could be safe. But you know what? My high priest has already died. And so I can be safe now. And if I commit a sin and I take my case and I say, Lord, I have sinned, but really here's my case. And I know God grants me forgiveness. I don't have to hide out from God. I don't have to be worried that he's always out for me to punish me because my high priest already died for me. And so I can be safe now where I am and receive what's due me. The Bible refers to Jesus as my refuge, my strong tower. He's now my place of refuge. So what if I sin? What if I do something that everybody else thinks is awful? I need to run. I need to get there fast. And you know what? Sometimes there's people who are prodding you along the way saying, hey, go to Jesus with that thing. Hey, run to him with that problem. Hey, go tell him what you've done. He will forgive you even if you don't believe he can. And so we have a place of refuge, but in the Old Testament, God was pointing already to Jesus as that place of safety where you could re receive not just safety, but forgiveness and then release 
because when the high priest died, they got released, and mine has already died. So there's nothing that should bind me. There's no sin consciousness that should be in my life that would make me feel like God's not going to hear my prayers. Because all I need to do is run to him and tell him what it's about and plead my case before him knowing that the high priest is on my side. So you're in good stead. Um, I'm going to skip a few more of these things. I'm going to go to the man Caleb. We had two guys, the only ones that gave the good report, Joshua and Caleb, when they went into the land to spy it out. But now they're the two guys that have survived. And, you know, they've lived a long time watching their friends die off. <laughs> I've got friends that came to the Lord the year I came to the Lord. I've got friends that were in ministry years that Easy and I were working in ministry, and some of them have died off. Some of them quit serving the Lord. Some of them, their marriages broke up. Some of them just got weary and disillusioned, and they're, they're nice people, but they're not doing anything for God. And so Joshua and Caleb had, had seen this disillusioning effect of some of their friends sort of die off and fall by the wayside. And so instead of being discouraged, though, they had to keep their hearts right before God. And sometimes that can be a hard thing to do. And so my hat goes off to the man Caleb, who by the time the land was portioned up was 85 years old, He's a little younger than Joshua. He's advanced in years. But, you know, you would think the man by then would just want a rocking chair and to sit back and take it easy. And see, if we're not careful, we think, okay, I've done all this. Now I need to rest. But if on the inside we're at rest, the things we're doing on the outside should not wear us down. They shouldn't wear us out. And so that's why God says that the principle is so important that even as we labor, there's a rest on the inside. And we let his strength fill us. And we let his joy be our strength. Or else we won't want to do the work of the Lord. Because there's always discouragement that's placed all around us to hinder us. But Caleb comes at the time when the land's going to be divvied up. He doesn't want a little soft place for himself. He's a tough old guy. And he says, see that mountain over there? I'll take the mountain. Now, a mountain is the treacherous place to climb. A mountain is a place that's not going to be easy. It's not like a level playing field. But he says this, and I love it. He says, as my strength was before for war, so it is now, undiminished, and I'll be able to go out and come in at will. In other words, I can still do what I want. I've got my own two feet. I am strong. I can still get around. Nobody, I don't need a crutch or a walker or a cane. As my strength was before for war, so it is now. It's undiminished. And so you need to think that way. You need to decide now that your, your life is going to get better and better and better in God. You're going to get stronger and stronger and stronger in God. Kenneth Hagin was preaching the week before the man died. <laughs> and so you don't need to retire. You need to refire. And sometimes even as a young person, you get worn out. But you know what? If you go before the Lord, let him revive you because it needs to get better and better and better, and you can get stronger and stronger and stronger. I don't want to pump him up, but my sister told me that she was at the Eustonian the other night, and there was this exercise machine. And a lot of these younger guys didn't know how it worked, and Easy goes, oh, I do that one all the time. Half the men that have his age, they couldn't even get onto the machine, you know? And so he gets over there, and he started doing the thing and said, this is how you do it, and he showed him. Okay, that's how you can be. If you decide that in God all things are possible, that nothing's going to slow you down, that you stay at rest on the inside so that your physical body can remain strong. I'll tell you what else. About seven or eight years ago, he decided he was going to quit eating the way I ate and the way we ate. And he started getting his diet a little healthier and incorporating healthful habits into his life. Your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost. It's the only one you've got. So if you want to work for God, you need to also protect it and keep it strong so that you can say what Caleb said. 
Joshua told Caleb when he said he wanted the mountain, he goes, okay, Caleb, take Mount Hebron. That was the mountain he looked at. It's yours. And Caleb laid hold of it. He conquered it. He shared the inheritance with his daughter. And then when she married, she was able to give her husband this wonderful piece of land. And Mount Hebron actually means I have crossed over. He waited a long time, but he was able to say in the end, hey, I have crossed over. I got what I waited for. And neither Joshua nor Caleb, when you start reading this book, had a selfish bone in their body. They weren't power hungry. They were leaders, but they didn't use it to their advantage and at the people's expense. They didn't get puffed up or prideful. They weren't about themselves. They were not about themselves. Joshua lived a single-minded life. It wasn't just a talk with him. It was a walk. He did the stuff. And I was reading a book, and it had this quote in it, and I loved it. And it said, no leader ever started with so little and ended with so much. So you know what? You can start with nothing and end up with everything that God has promised you. So don't think that you've got to have some kind of advantage or edge. No other leader ever started with so little and ended with so much. Joshua didn't bask in partial conquest. He wasn't mediocre. He moved on to new victories. He lived in rest, even though fierce battles were around him all the time. He depended not on his own strength, but on God. He fully trusted that whatever God said, God was able to do if he would simply obey. See, that's, that's something we need to get inside us. Whatever God said, God is faithful to do if we will simply obey. Joshua committed his cares to the Lord. Sometimes things can seem so overwhelming, you don't know what to do. You've got to cast the cares on the Lord. And the cast word there means throw them away forcefully because they're not going to want to leave. They're going to want to stay on you. But you cast them on the Lord so that you're free to do what God says. Joshua had humility. He was humble of heart. But note, he was the last one in all of Israel to claim his land. Just because he was the leader, he didn't take the best part for himself. He was like Abraham. Abraham let Lot take the part that he chose. Joshua was the last one to claim his inheritance. He had every single right to be first. He was brilliant. He was their commander-in-chief, but he waited until last. And so even here, you've got the principle, the first shall be last and the last first. There's a divine economy in God that's not sometimes how we would think in a human way. Joshua didn't take any credit for any of the battles that were won, for all the great victories, because he knew it was God that promised Canaan to the people. It was God who gave deliverance in the desert. It was God who guided them across the Jordan. It was God who destroyed the enemy cities. It was God who fought in battle, even when he had to send hailstones. It was God who gave them every single victory. And it was God who gave them peace on the inside. And so we've got to come to the point where we know, hey, God, it's you. <laughs> it's about you and you alone. Whatever I need in my life, you are only the one. You're the only one that can give it to me. But you can do it, and you will do it. And you are faithful to your word. It takes spiritual diligence to prosper in peace as well as in conflict. Some of us, when things are going on around us that are smooth, we're okay. But in the midst of conflict, we come unglued. And God wants to build in us whatever it takes so that we can prosper, whether it's in a peaceful time or a conflicting time because we're going to have both. And Joshua lived a total of 110 years. Of those 110 years, he spent 40 as a slave in Egypt. He spent 40 as Moses' helper, uh, watching his friends die off, 
and then he spent 30 being the great military commander of the people of God. 80 years of preparation for 30 years of, of spectacular service in the kingdom of God. We want to prepare two years <laughs> and have 80 years of, of, you know, insurmountable victory. But sometimes there's a time of preparation, and every single thing you go through, God will recycle. God will use it. You won't lose it. There'll be something good that comes out of it. Even if God didn't cause it, what the devil meant for evil, God will work for your good and for the good of many people. Every hard thing I've ever gone through, it's something I can pull on. It's a resource I draw on to help somebody else through the same kind of situation. So God is the great recycler. God can use you no matter what's gone on in your life up till now. In Joshua 21, 43, we're closing up. The Bible says this. So the Lord gave to Israel all the land which he had sworn to give to their fathers, and they took possession of it, and they lived in it. The Lord gave them rest all around according to all he had sworn to their fathers. And not a man of all their enemies stood against them. The Lord delivered all their enemies into their hand. Not a word, the Bible says this, not a word, not a word failed of any good thing that the Lord had spoken to the house of Israel. Not a word, not a word failed of anything God had said. God has spoken words to you. Not a word, not one word of anything God had said failed. And yet, there are times in our life when we want to accuse God and say, God, you said, but you know what? Not a word failed. Now, God had said many things. And for some people, they could give the testimony. It didn't happen. But Joshua and Caleb, they held on. They withstood, and they were able to get to the point to witness that not a word failed of all God said. And so God's not going to lie. But Cammie and I were talking, there's that if then. If you do this, then I can do that. But you know what? If I made some foolish choices, and if I let the devil get in my head, and if I decided I couldn't take this and I'm not going to do that, do you know what? Some of the things that God said, I might in stupidity be able to go, you know what? What God said didn't happen. But it wouldn't be about God. It would be about me. Because not a word that God says will fall to the ground. God will accomplish everything he sets out to do. The only thing God doesn't have power over is your free will. And he gives you a free will and you can make choices. And sometimes your choices are the deterrent that prevents him from doing what he said, even though that was what he desired for you and for me and for all of us. The Bible says it at the very end. All came to pass. All came to pass of what God had said. God is faithful. He's so faithful. So I want to end with this. Remember I told you Joshua preached two sermons in his lifetime. He didn't have to be a great preacher, but he was a great leader. He preached two sermons. And so at the end of his life, he summoned all of Israel to a place called Shechem. Shechem means the place of diligence, the place of perseverance, the place of faithfulness, the place of loyalty. Boy, it was the right place for Joshua to end up that described him and he said this to the people it is not with your sword or your bows that the enemy has been vanquished but it's only been by the power of God the Lord has given you a land for which you did not labor he's given you cities to dwell in that you didn't build he's given you vineyards and he's given you olive groves that you didn't plant sometimes God gives you stuff that you don't even deserve 
Now, therefore, fear the Lord. Serve him in sincerity and truth. Put away false and foreign gods from among you and choose. And choose. See, even if you're chosen, you still have to choose. Even if God chose you, you still have to make choices all along the way. And so Joshua tells them, and choose. Decide today, what will you do with God? What are you going to do with God? See, choose you this day who you will serve. Joshua said, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. But you know what? Every day you get the choice. <laughs> Today, what are you going to do with God? <laughs> and, you know, maybe if things are going well and the people all around you are praising, you do well. But tomorrow when things are tough, what are you going to do with God? And three months from now, when the people that you counted on, you can't count on them anymore, what are you going to do with God? And, and two years from now, when you lose everything you thought you could hold on to, and now it looks bleak, what are you going to do with God? And so there's a choice you have on a daily basis. But you know what? I chose a long time ago, no matter what, I'm going with God. And no matter what it looks like, I'm not going to change my mind. Because God doesn't change his, and if I'm supposed to be like him, I, I need to get like that. And so I'm not going to be moved by what people do. I'm not going to be moved by circumstances. I don't care if we're rich. I don't care if we're poor. I don't care if we have a house we like. I don't have, care if we have a house we don't like. I don't care if we're in plenty or in famine. I don't care if people like me or don't like me. And I've had both. And it feels better when they like you. But when they don't, you still need to do what you know God has said. And so, basically, we got to learn a lot from the life of Joshua. But if we can just be like him, we will succeed. And we will not only gain ground for ourselves and our lives and prosper and have plenty, we will make a difference for a lot of people because we will affect everybody else around us. The negative spies affected <laughs> a million people, didn't get what they were supposed to get because they listened to the wrong folks. But a couple of positive men <laughs> got everybody <laughs> across. They crossed over and not a word of all that God said failed. Stand to your feet with me. Thank you, Lord, that you are a faithful God to every generation. Lord, you haven't changed, not yet, <laughs> and you won't. Father, I thank you that you say that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God, we can't always say that about ourselves. And so we're asking you to help us, God, that we can get on an even keel, that there won't be an up-and-down roller coaster ride. But, God, there will be a stability, an assurance, a conviction. And, God, no matter what, we will serve you with all of our hearts. And, God, if there's places in our hearts that we're blind to, that we don't even understand that are there, that are a hindrance, God, we ask you to deal with it and shine your spotlight, God, and get us straight so we can walk down the path that you have designed for us. God, we thank you that you're God of hope, that you've given us a future and a hope, and it's good and not evil. And so, Father, I thank you, Lord, for the principles and precepts that are in this book that we see in the life of this man. And, God, we would only hope that as we walk out your ways, that others can look at us and say, hey, if I live by the principles they live by, if I live by the precepts I see in them, maybe I'll be okay too. So, Father, we would like to be a witness and a light to everybody around us. Help us get our lives in such a place that we can be exactly that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.